Good day to you all, and welcome to the second episode of our podcast, Brighter Talks. As you already know, the Brighter Talks podcast is about cities and how we can prepare them for a brighter future, make them more efficient, more sustainable, and more livable. In each Brighter Talks episode, I'm talking to an expert, for instance, a scientist, an architect, or a university teacher. We speak about their respective visions of a future city and how those can become reality. And I'm more than happy to announce that today we have a very interesting guest, the architect James Timberlake. We'll be speaking about new approaches to architecture. Does the entire industry have to change to become more sustainable? Why would that be so important? And what kind of materials and technologies can be used to further that change? What hurdles are there to be overcome? What challenges must be faced? Well, that's what James and I will be discussing today. Hello, James. Hi, Greg. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, James, as a bit of scene setting for our audience, you're the co-founder of the architecture firm Kieran Timberlake, um, and together with your partner Stephen Kieran, you're planning uh, to build some groundbreaking landmark buildings. Can you talk a bit about the firm, your history, uh, and what you've already sort of worked on, what your approach to buildings are? It's good to be on this podcast, by the way, and thank you for hosting it. Um, you know, in 1984, Stephen Kieran and I uh, began the firm, so we're 35 years old this year. We have about 100 people in the office, and it's an interdisciplinary uh, firm with uh, a interdisciplinary uh, research arm as well, uh, which we're known for and embed in all of our projects. You know, we've been involved in some very uh, interesting and important projects, both in the United States and around the world. Many people would know us most recently for completing the new U.S. Embassy in London for the Department of State, the United States government. Um, we're currently working on a very large building for NYU in New York, uh, New York University. We've just completed uh, a major campus addition and renovation at Washington University in St. Louis and are working on about 10 projects across the West Coast from Washington State down through California. We've worked in Singapore, Malaysia, India, Dhaka, Bangladesh, um, you know, uh, both in our research work, but also uh, with our architecture as well. And we like doing that. We have a global presence. Well, yes, in addition to your projects being, you know, notable for their aesthetics and importance, you know, as a firm, you also have a very interesting approach uh, to materials and also to sort of how the role of the architect should change. And I want to focus, I guess, on two of your projects, um, one of which being the smart wrap structure and also your cellophane house that you designed for MoMA uh, more than a decade ago. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about those two projects and their genesis. I'd love to, you know, those projects, you know, are really dear to my heart. They are something that, you know, we've been interested in and pursuing for some time. And anybody who knows anything about Karen Timberlake knows that we tend to not be one and done with our ideas. We tend to uh, iterate uh, and bring along ideas that we've been working on for a long time. The genesis for both of those projects goes back probably almost 20 years when Stephen Kieran and I, we've taught widely, but we were teaching a uh, innovation studio, research studio at the University of Pennsylvania, and simultaneously working on projects here in the office uh, that investigated uh, new materials and new materialities. 
In 2001, the American Institute of Architects uh, Fellows uh, awarded us the Benjamin Latrobe Fellowship, which was a, the very first inaugural uh, research fellowship in architecture. And we used that as a platform to write a book called Refabricating Architecture, which was published in 2003 uh, through McGraw-Hill and is still widely published and has been interpreted into both Mandarin and in Korean as well and published widely around the world. In that book, we began to you know, talk about the reintegration of uh, disciplines in architecture, noting that there had been an explosion of new materials in architecture and that they weren't being widely adopted across architecture's platform and engineering's platform, um, and how to go about doing that. And one of those projects was really thinking about integrating new technologies into a variety of platforms. SmartRap, uh, which we began working on in 2002, you know, was a thinking about how to integrate uh, OLEDs, OLEDs, which are now you know, commonly platformed in things like TVs and telephones, also into um, an exterior wall wrap, uh, along with photovoltaics and thin film batteries, or TFTs, in a way that would make an, an interactive, light-producing, energy-gathering envelope for buildings, replacing things like you know, windows and walls and reinterpreting the whole uh, nature of the materiality of the exterior of our buildings. And we displayed that in 2004 at the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. In 2008, then, MoMA came along, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and in a wide call around the world, they invited architects and designers to think about providing uh, an off-site produced house for a show called Home Delivery. We were one of those firms selected, and we chose to provide to them a house which we called Cellophane House, which was a platform of modularly constructed parts joined together into a four-story platform that you know formed not only a townhouse, but then could be projected into you know, a wide range of platforms for housing uh, that were wrapped by a next generation of smart wrap. Uh, it had PVs and the ETFE exterior wall that then you know, was displayed in New York between 53rd and 54th Street uh, at the Museum of Modern Art for about seven months and had 750,000 people walk through that exhibit. We measured the outcomes of that wall. Um, you know, at the Cooper Hewitt, people were saying, well, how could this possibly, you know, work as a exterior wall wrap on a building, uh, which we were speculating on and that Wired magazine and Time magazine had picked up and had, you know, commented on as being, you know, one of the most innovative ideas uh, in the world at the time. And so Cellophane House became that opportunity for us to demonstrate how that could provide for both the speculation that we had mentioned in SmartRap, but then uh, produce it in such a way, put it out there in such a way that people could experience it 
in a platform that was house-like uh, that they could understand how it would not only be a weatherproof membrane to something like a building or a house, but also for us to be able to measure it uh, and understand how it can perform. And that, those measurements we widely published um, and then also published a book called Cellophane House to chronicle those outcomes. Fascinating. Well, that raises a number of questions. Um, perhaps we could answer a few. But one that immediately comes to mind is, why cellophane? Um, you know, architects, of course, for the last hundred years have been experimenting with all kinds of materials. Uh, the Bauhaus a hundred years ago, for example, you know, arrived at steel and glass and sort of, you know, the modern lexicon. Um, but cellophane is a fascinating material to work with. What made you think to work with cellophane and think to work with a wrap structure? Um, what was the sort of origins of that idea? Well, the origins of it was really, you know, the query that we posed to ourselves. How could we replace conventional building materials such as brick and mortar and inserting windows, punching holes in that brick and mortar with windows to, with a uniform wrap that might allow us to eliminate things, you know, that come with conventional building like leaks and air infiltration that, you know, cause our envelopes and membranes of our buildings, glass membranes of our buildings to be quite unsustainable environmentally. And so the whole idea of a wrap that would be seamless, eliminating those seams became the answer to the query. The use of the term cellophane was really a way of branding the house, bringing forward that connection of essentially an airtight wrap that, you know, my generation and your generation grew up with, if you will, you know, um, sealing the food in their refrigerator, you know, using something quite kind of interesting and unique, but also anecdotal uh, as a way of branding the house. The material itself is um, either PET, an ethofluoroethylene uh, product um, that is both uh, has a polymer and a petrochemical base, which has some bad qualities to it, of course, uh, because it has a carbon basis to it. Yet it is 98 to 99% recyclable, so it has a life cycle stream to it. So things like our water bottles, you know, are able to be recycled back into this film. That film becomes a fabric and the fabric then becomes something that is quite strong and quite um, durable uh, and has a, a life cycle to it of quite a bit of length. So it becomes something that can be interpreted into a building product because it has uh, properties that um, are quite strong. You mentioned that tens of thousands of people saw the cellophane house during its its various museum installations. Um, what were their reactions to the house? Did they see it as a provocation? Do they address it seriously? How did you educate them on the properties of the house and a different type of architecture using these materials? It was interesting because we had our own, not podcast, but kind of journal that we were keeping along the way. And there were comments that were posted on social media and that we gleaned. Um, 
I think the overwhelming response to that installation at MoMA, not just the show, but the house itself was overwhelmingly positive, that it was forward-looking, that it was um, really thinking about a different way of living. Um, it was thinking about both how, you know, thin films could begin to formulate the notion uh, of the way of both living in cities, but living uh, in the future. When they were in the house, the reactions that we got were, you know, just, wow, why can't we have this now? Why can't we live this way right now? Why are we in a brick townhouse when we could be living in cellophane house? You know, they saw the properties of how abundant amounts of daylight coming through a house, you know, really transformed the way they might think, live, and work, uh, and how they might engage the city, uh, and how the city might engage, you know, architecture as well. Interesting. Well, given that work and given your writings on the subject, you know, I take it that, you know, energy consumption and sustainability are subjects very near and dear to the firm. And I'm curious, has that always been a core value of Kieran Timberlake? And has it run through all of your work? When did you realize that architecture had to move beyond uh, its sort of classical values of form into becoming the sort of machine for resilient living? You know, that's a great question. And, and I'm, I'm grateful that you asked that because those core values have been something that Stephen Kieran and I have had, you know, ever since... 1984, I think, when we began the firm. It's something not just, uh, you know, that has just occurred to us in the last few years, but has been something that's underpinned how we've thought about not only the logistics of construction, but also the design of our buildings and the planning of our projects ever since the inception of our firm. And, you know, we know that, you know, in the late 1990s, it became a kind of vogue, you know, amongst architects. And, and, and certainly in the last 15 years, it's become this underpinning of this generation of architects. But I think this is something that Steve and I and the firm have always thought we needed to do better at. Um, and the tools and resources that we have have only advanced over the years. You have to remember that in 1984, when we began the firm, we were almost an analog firm, not a digital firm, if you will, uh, you know, a firm that began drawing with uh, the kind of tools and workflows of, you know, the mid 20th century, you know, uh, May lines and pens and pencils, not with computers. As we got to the late 1990s and the 2000s, we're the generation of firm that's had to span from those analog tools to the digital tools. And so, you know, by bringing research into our office, by establishing an interdisciplinary research team that is embedded into our projects and into our platform, using people that, um, you know, incorporating people that have both environmental backgrounds, engineering backgrounds, digital backgrounds, um, digital design tool backgrounds. Um, one of the things that we've been able to do is design tools and workflows going forward uh, that have enabled us to think differently about not only the delivery of our buildings, but the actual life cycle and term of our buildings, uh, in both from a sustainable and an environmental uh, ethics point of view. And that's just a really 
critical aspect of everything we think about. Things like the new London Embassy that are uh, both BREEAM outstanding, the UK standard that is carbon-based, but also meeting the USGBC lead excellent characteristics with simultaneity is just a really critical uh, kind of query that we feel is important for all architects to be taking off as they design for any client going forward. Well, I want to focus for a moment back on materials. You know, the cellophane house is now 15 years old. It's no longer the state of the art. So when it comes to building more sustainably and using new materials in that, um, you know, what is the, the sort of bleeding edge of that? What are you working with and what are you most excited about that exists right now? Well, like I said, we don't throw anything away. So we, we keep uh, iterating what we're doing. We're still looking for ways to integrate technologies and integrate ways that our envelopes and our interiors can become smarter. And so we've developed softwares like um, our tally software so that, you know, we can measure on a daily basis, you know, our walk through life, if you will, within our buildings. And we've shared that tally platform with the architecture uh, industry and engineering industry at large. It's available to people uh, going forward. Um, actually, that's our um, lifecycle software, you know, that is a BIM uh, plug-in for Revit. We've also uh, developed our Roast platform, which is our digital platform to be able to measure our our walk through our daily lives. So Roast is the app that we can carry on our phones and tie into our building management systems uh, going forward. But we're also looking for ways as we develop smart wrap, continuing to develop that, to think about ways to take materials that have a lower carbon footprint, uh, but integrate technologies within them, you know, to advance them both for kind of daily walk of lives that we go through. How do we live? How do we work? How do we get better? How is our wellness? Those are all things that drive us uh, each and every day. I do think that we, um, I chuckled when you said, Greg, that smart wrap was sort of technology in the past because we still think it's of it as pre current present technology that we're still attempting to advance in the future. But we are pressed and we are pushed as architects uh, to think about ways to lower the carbon footprint and eliminate some of the petrochemicals out of our uh, design stream. And I think, so if we could find a fabric that didn't have a petrochemical basis from its outset that had the properties of ETFE and PET, uh, that had a long life cycle return, we would be very interested in that. Uh, we're, we're just beginning some forays into some, some biophilia, some biophilic, you know, uh, explorations um, as well. We're intrigued by some of the architects and engineers like Arup that have um, looked at plant-based materials, you know, the mushroom-based materials, for instance, those intrigue us things that lower the carbon footprint of concrete, you know, the additives that might lower the carbon footprint of concrete, because a lot of 
concrete is based upon firing limestones and, you know, ashes that then get buried into the concrete that sequester those carbons, give concrete a kind of uh, bad name. So, you know, trying to find ways forward with our colleagues, uh, with materials that don't have to put carbon in the air, but can sequester carbon out of the air is really, I think, an issue for us and certainly for companies like Covestro and also for, you know, other companies as well. Well, moving away from from materials and the, and the architectural practice for a moment, I'm also curious your thoughts on built form itself. I mean, using new sustainable materials in the service of single family McMansions with large, you know, uh, architectural footprints aren't sustainable either. And so I'm curious how your work is explored. How do we, you know, not just uh, harness new technologies and new materials, but also, um, you know, how do we think about how we should live, how we should design our cities, how the built form interacts with transportation, for example, and energy systems? Um, you know, how have you thought more holistically about how we should build cities and how do you recommend architects think the same? I think, uh, you know, as we live, we in the United States are not challenged quite in the same way as the rest of the world, but eventually we will be by space. We continue to move in the United States from, you know, urban spaces to exurban spaces to greenfield spaces. And at some point, the United States is going to have to wake up to the fact that in order to maintain and have some balance of life that we enjoy, um, and this is true in Canada as well, that we are going to face the same things that are happening in Asia, uh, in Southeast Asia, and also in Europe, that space is a challenge and space is not unlimited, and that we are going to have to be thinking about how much space an individual can take up and utilize uh, and enjoy, and how much of that is privatized and how much of that is shared and retained in the public realm. And our cities and where we live are already emerging in the United States to being more transit-oriented. The Europeans and the Asians are much more and way, way, way ahead of us. We here in the United States are way too beholden on our cars and our single-family cars and our single-family homes with large tracts of land around them. And so, you know, how we can use less uh, in our daily lives, how we can share and how we can engage the public realm is very much uh, an aspect of how we should inform how we live, what we design for living, what we design for transport, how we engage one another, um, and then how that might enable this island home of the globe, the earth, become, you know, and remain present for future generations. Well, you mentioned there, I mean, you touched upon this in your answer, but another question, the flip side to what I asked is, is in, you know, as we're taping this, uh, wildfires are raging through California. Uh, new climate projection models show that, you know, global cities may be inundated with rising sea levels even more than we originally feared by 2050. In addition to designing an architecture that can mitigate our carbon emissions and our carbon footprint, 
Have you thought about how the materials you're experimenting with can also help us adapt to an era of climate change, whether that is perhaps amphibious architecture, uh, whether that is, you know, incorporating energy production into our structures uh, to lessen the possibility of planned blackouts to reduce the possibility of forest fires is what's happening in California. Um, how, How do we think about that side of the equation as well? Well, you know, absolutely. And that's where, in fact, that question actually goes back full circle in some ways to smart rap because the whole notion of I'm not a conspiracy theorist or any kind of protectionist, self-protectionist, but I do believe that the way we live incrementally affects us in an aggregated way. And so, you know, the thinking that PG&E has to turn off the power to tens of millions of people in California in order to protect um, from uh, exacerbating, you know, the Santa Ana winds and the fire uh, issues in California is a deep concern. And so, Things like smart wrap where, you know, self-sustainably we could be gathering uh, power on our own uh, incrementally. And I know you do this in Montreal and I know they do this in Germany and uh, in Asia as well. We should be doing it in the United States that, you know, this building that we're currently in, which we're investigating as we speak, should have its own PVs on its roof. It should be able to gather its own energy. It should share that energy to the greater uh, grid when necessary, but in the moments when the greater grid has to be not the single source of supply that we currently have, we can continue to you know, go about at least a modicum of our daily lives and work uh, going forward. So it's not just about reducing our energy models and reducing our individual carbon streams, but it's also about how we can become more sustainably and individually powered, if you will, uh, you know, in our daily lives. And things like our houses being on geothermal well streams, um, you know, so that we reduce the need to, you know, uh, draw upon a carbon-based power grid. That's really huge. We have to understand that as individuals, we have to look outside of ourselves and outside of our professions and what we do, whether we're an economist in New York or whether we're a teacher in the Midwest or whether we're in South America uh, and a fisherman and have to understand that what we're doing is affecting how we live because we're on an island and this is the only island that we have and there is no other place to go. And that island is slowly becoming more and more crowded and more and more consumed and more and more environmentally uh, threatened. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I have one more question and perhaps provocation for you. Um, A century ago, the public looked to architects as innovators, dreamers, visionaries, the ones with the agency to shape and remake our cities. And today, they turn to startups uh, with that level of agency. And so my last question for you is, is do architects need to become inventors and innovators again? You know, uh, should you be patenting your technology? Should you be investigating new materials? Do, Do architects really need to take the future into their own hands, so to speak, to guarantee that we can build the kind of future that's necessary to forestall some of the outcomes that you've described? 
Absolutely, they do, but not in the way that we were taught in architecture school, which was the idea that singular intelligence, a kind of black cape hero god, is the you know the end all and be all Oz of uh, the design world. No, this takes collective intelligence. It takes broader thinking. It takes coalescence of thought. It takes the thousand bits of collaborative thinking that people can bring to the vision that maybe a singular person might have, but in order to realize those visions, it takes a village and it takes a country and a government and a world to really come together uh, to solve those problems. So I encourage, yes, the innovator, inventor, architect, but I want to be sure that when we think about that and encourage those to do that, that we are doing so with a, a, a collaborative, collective intelligence team. Well, thank you, James, for a fascinating and inspiring conversation. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you very much, Greg, and I'm, I'm glad to be able to do this. And uh, thank you to the sponsors. Well, we'll be back soon with another episode of Brighter Talks. Thank you for listening.